0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show. As you know, we love a special guest. This time it's um, The Scientists, the post-punk band from Perth, Australia, because I recently spoke to Kim Salmon to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is The Interview And, um, yes, after sorting out our time differences, that was the only thing we had that we had to sort out. We had a great conversation. So this is it. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Um, After several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Kim, it's over to you. Take it away.
1: Well, there's a few kind of things, but just to tie the David Bowie thing into it, before I was really... Into it you see, I was born in a couple of years before you in fifty seven and um the sixties for me was like a, was wallpaper i was I was kind of a sci fi nerd of a kid i liked um and also i was I was good at art, so that's really those are the two things that drove me really it was right just kind of, but but and and so music was just like a wallpaper for me, so the Beatles and the stones and whatever there was in the hit parade sandy Shaw. Uh, R&B, it was yes. just stuck in the background that had a vague awareness for me, but it wasn't really, wasn't, music wasn't particularly my thing. And, but I remember when I was about 13 watching the Grammy Awards and they had this uh, skinny guy with long curly hair was singing a song, his new song, and I got his name wrong because I thought they were saying his name was David Bowman. Uh, oh right! That's the name of the that's the name of the main guy in two thousand and one, A Space Odyssey. And right. so naturally, I, I misheard Space Oddity and thought they were saying Space Odyssey. And I thought, "I oh, want a cool song." He's singing about you know being on a launch pad and going into space, and then it all goes wrong. And I thought, "This is really cool. I'm kind of interested in this." You know, yes, kind of this, this cat, I thought to myself. Um, and then, um, uh, yeah, I sort of didn't hear about him for a couple of years. And in that time, I heard a few sounds on the radio and they were things like, it was, because we're talking 1970. Yes. There was like Spirit in the Sky um, by Norman Greenbaum and there was sort of like heavy kind of sounds and, on the radio, but it was the more electrified sounding guitars, uh, T-Rex being one of them and... Uh, um, but you know heavy, heavy rockers like deep purple and stuff so i heard these sounds and uh, you know even various psych rock sounds that kind of permeated the radio around that era mm. so i totally suddenly became interested in in this pop music thing um or rock music you know rock and roll or whatever yes and um so um by about 1972, which is you know, or maybe it was 71, I think I I, I remember listening to some radio show, uh, and they said this is David Bowie, and I said I remember that guy, and uh, I think I think from my memory, he was doing this acoustic number, which went on at the end a bit with the, with a bit of a guitar solo. So I think it must have been Andy
0: Warhol. Right. Yes.
1: And I thought, oh wow, that's really cool. Whatever that is, it's kind of another take on this whole whatever he does. He's pretty jiving so I'm starting to get this kind of
0: jive talk going on in my head yes (laughs) and
1: and so um that these were kind of my formative things really so um yes around around that time I sort of thought well I've got to sort of maybe get involved in this thing I thought I'd be a singer so I saw a lot of singers on on pop shows that they by that stage they had quite long hair and they were sort of like Parrot Fawcett Majors later would have, you know. Yeah. You'd see Mick Jagger and a couple of guys from Australian bands. Um, there was like a band called the Zoots and a band called the Master's Apprentices, and they looked really groovy. They were like they were like kind of, you know, Australian imitations of the Rolling Stones, really. But Right. They had the singers were ultra dressed up, you know, with their skinny rib jumpers on and flouncy hair and scarves and they'd prance around, sort of, you know. And,
0: was that kind so of? I
1: wanted to be one of them, and yes. the thing was, I figured, no, nah, I can't really sing, <laughs> so you got to be able to sing. Something. I um, ended up uh, grabbing a guitar. I um, bought a guitar from Kmart. It was uh, an audition acoustic guitar. It's called audition. And um, I recently saw a great guitarist called Mark Rebo playing one of these things at a gig that I saw, I think he was supporting John Spencer, but this is all on a side to just this yeah. crappy Kmart guitar. That's what it was. And uh, I persuaded my um, parents to buy me guitar lessons and the 60 year old jazz guitarist who was teaching me scorned my guitar <laughs> <laughs> and um, taught me how to read um, treble clef melody lines and some chords after about six months, I sort of—I uh, must have run out of lessons, and I taught myself the rest. So um, yeah, so, I was, so was about fifteen, fourteen, or fifteen.
0: So were you already sort of picking up on that kind of, well, there's several scenes, wasn't there? Kind of from the UK, there was kind of obviously the glam period, but then the, um, Black Sabbath had got their first album out in about 71, 72. And then there was, like you said, Deep Purple, and then Led Zeppelin started to appear. But then in America, there was that sort of, there was the Nuggets series, wasn't there? The kind of early garage punk. I didn't punk. know about
1: that. So I thought of knew about some of those things because they were sort of part of what you might hear, you know, the, um, the odd... Hit I might have remembered or heard, um, but I didn't know about that until punk rock sort of happened a few years later. Um, yes, those were my awakenings to music, and I think really the heavy rock sort of thing and the glam thing looks really the same thing, dressed up differently. And you know, looking back, I often thought, well, there was grunge and there was glam, it was the force of the G's. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's what got me into it. Really, I mean, the grungy side of it was more Cream's Clearwater Revival with their check shirts and uh, you know Deep Purple with their t-shirts or whatever. They they, they didn't. To me, they didn't have that same kind of stagey thing that the other the glam bands were doing. But the music wasn't that different. Really, they were just both. It was just heavy rock. Heavy rock and roll. Sort of yes, it was, it was
0: just dressed up because I can remember that thrill of seeing Alice Cooper doing schools out and being at that oh, age where you just know. went, my God, that is so rebellious. And your parents definitely hated it. And then I loved also things like the Osmonds doing crazy horses. And I was about 10, 11. And just I being.
1: older. I couldn't really come to the Osmonds. <laughs> <laughs>
0: there was something yeah, I mean, incredibly yeah. exciting about it. But then there was Sweet as well with Blockbuster and uh, Ballroom yeah, Blitz. I mean, and. Uh, and, but they uh, were still
1: doing; they were still copying the the muddy waters riff, you know, and like Bowie did after them. You know, it was like with Gene Genie; it was still "I'm a Man," you know. It was that riff or managed boy. So they they it was just the Yardbirds had done it. So to me, I could think this is all just the same thing.
0: Yes, well, it, it, it was. I think unless you yes, were you living on the streets Bowie
1: of. Dress up as as as. Uh, you know, space-age glam rock or something.
0: Yes. So when you got your first punk band together, this was like 76, this was with, was it the Cheap Nasties was your first band?
1: Yeah, it was.
0: And how did that develop?
1: Well, it, that, what happened was uh, I was, uh, you know, in my lonely bedroom, in my, floating in my tin can, basically. Yes. I <laughs> the world without, you know, this is a world devoid of anything. You know, other people, girls. <laughs> it was <laughs> I was at home. Um, and um then I went to um an institute of technology, we'll call it uni. I went to university yes. to study fine art, which was what I was gonna do um in nineteen seventy five. And uh there are all these um well I you know, I was doing that um being slightly awakened to music, I could finally I was finally old enough to go to a pub and drink and see some bands and in, in Perth it was like bands were really like just um, it, at that stage they were cover bands either either, either they were cover bands or they were blues bands
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, and it was like um, by 1975 um, there were some really groovy blues bands but they were kind of like there was that's all band? You see, they were covers, cover bands, and they were really kind of shitty, and they really sort of, uh, um, you know, they weren't very groovy. Or, or the ones that the uni university students wanted to see were all these blues bands, but they were like exactly as if that was your only option if you wanted to be in a band yourself. Yes, um, I I'd, oh. I'd got um, jamming with some friends that I finally met at uni, and one of them was my friend Dave Faulkner. He actually went to a different uni, but I'll, you know. It's by the by Dave Faulkner uh, went on to form the Hoodoo Gurus. But uh, right, he's a keyboard player. So um, anyway, um, we we had this band that we tried to start, and uh, um, around the end of '75, and it was it probably wasn't to be. It was very pretentious, kind of proggy, proggy kind of thing. We thought we were going to be can, Yes. Or, or um, you know, but really we were just a jumped up fuzz box blues band. <laughs> you know, but, but um, I think uh, we just, you know, a band that sort of jammed way too long and nothing really happened with it. But they, they were the people, that, he was one of the people I was hanging out with, a couple of my old school friends. And did that year at Fine Art, passed it. And it was holidays, which for us is like now. Uh, yes,
0: you know, I middle, gather
1: that. Our summer is like your winter. Uh, but um, so we I was kind of like, um, yeah, I, I used to read New Musical Express fairly religiously because in, in the most isolated city in the world, which was Perth, that was kind of one of my lifelines to <laughs> the outside world from inside my little bedroom yeah so um, yeah so that, that i i I, re- I came across i came upon an article by charles shah murray and it was actually called are you alive to the jive of 75 wow and it was all about cbgb's and i was sort of looking at this um article and it was filled with people with names like johnny thunders and richard hell and There was a band called Blondie and another one called Talking Heads and there was the Ramones, which were like the Piste resistance, you know, they all, he said, and there's Joey, he's the one in the ripped jeans, leather jacket and sneakers and there's Johnny and he's got the, the ripped jeans, leather jacket and sneakers and they all start their songs with one, two, three, four and they've only got like five songs and each song goes like only just a bit over a minute and I'm thinking, the scene, Wow. It's not the blues. It's no, it, I I um, really kind of thought this is it, and I tried to persuade my friends this is you know that I'd seen the light. I was like religious fervor. And of course, um, it took a while to, to, to um, convert. <laughs> so, so, what um,
0: what's kind of people like Radio Birdman and um, the Saints? Well, I'd
1: heard about them. I'd heard. Well, I hadn't heard about the Saints. Because this is just the end of nineteen seventy-five, right. summer, summer holidays. So, I, I I read in Australian rock magazines about um, Radio Birdman, and they seemed sort of interesting, but I didn't put a, put two and two together and realise they had something to do with CBGBs, yes, um, or or Detroit all of these other concepts. So I um, I just had well. I tried to persuade my proggy friends like Dave let's do let's let's look at this punk rock thing, and um, that didn't seem to really happen, so I then drafted my friends from high school, Mark and Ken, into a band which I called the Cheap nasties because I thought, what's a punk sounding name?
0: Yes, that's a good what's name I came
1: up with. So there was just us three to start with and, um, you know, over the next, well, I went, I went back to art school at the end of the holidays and uh, I think I thought, uh, I've had enough of this um, student life. I've got to go out and uh, get me some actual life. So I got a job and then I got another job and in the meantime, I um, was trying to get Ken and Mark happening into this band, but their their skills were a bit more rudimentary. Mm-hmm. So um, they were keen on the idea of being in a band, and that's why they went for the punk thing, because it was like, oh, well, their abilities kind of matched up with this idea. <laughs> but, um, yes. So, so um, they, um, you know, they're friends of mine to this day. Well, they all are, Dave is as well, you know. But, so in this time, that's what we would, I, I tried to get that happening and, In the meantime, I had a couple of jobs. Uh, My third job was uh, because I'd been in a bank and I think I, would through not being very good at maths, I'd managed to lose about (laughs) $10,000 from that bank and we couldn't get back somehow. (laughs) And I was asked kindly to leave, perhaps, or (laughs) kindly asked to leave. And the third job I found myself in is bizarre. I was in a... I was a guitar player in a strip club band. But nice. The band wasn't really in, wasn't the backup for the stripper. The stripper would happen on Wednesday nights and Friday and Saturday nights in the middle of the set, in the middle of the, the night's entertainment. So we'd have, we'd be doing it three hours a night, six nights a week. Right. From about 11, 11 p.m. till, God knows, two or three in the morning, you know, just, uh, and we, it was in, Port Town next to Perth, which was called Fremantle, and it was sort of in those days. It's been become very gentrified now. Mm. In those days, it wasn't. It was a very rough place, Fremantle, and being a port. And um, this this strip club that we played in was real. That that strip club was like a cover for, for what it really was, which was a pickup joint for hookers and a place for bloody rough people and underworld people to be kind of hanging out doing their deals and stuff so i did that for about two months so i kind of cut my teeth as a musician there because yes. it was a shitty cover band and we had a policy of doing anything that anybody asked for so that meant anything and if you didn't know how to play you'd make it up and- it was an incredible experience that I did. Well, that's, really that's well. That's
0: interesting because I suppose the Beatles did that. You know, that time in Hamburg, which was quite pivotal in their musical development. And then I was talking to the guitarist from Twisted Sister. Was it JJ French? And he was talking about they spent the, from like 1972 to 1982 just playing like every night. Wow. Two or three times, sometimes an evening. Well, so he, yeah, he sta- was, stacked up a lot of time. So playing live is quite an important part of a musical, the musical journey, was. really, isn't it?
1: It was, but it really changed my skill skill set or whatever as a musician. It would change me quite a lot. But it wasn't the, the punk thing. I have to I have to hasten to add. No, it was this other thing, and it, it was sort of like I, um, those particular cover bands that Perth seemed to have lots of. I, would, I After this two months, it was bizarre. After the two months, I thought, I, I've got to get out of this, get back to my my, my cheap nasties band and do something with them. <laughs> or, I've got to maybe get a, a, a more sane kind of a job. Yes. Um, um, but what happened was, a couple of things happened, was that because I wasn't some aspiring progster, I was more interested in just doing the job of being the guitarist in this band. A lot of after-hours musicians would be in this nightclub watching. The band was called Troubled Waters. <laughs> and and um, the club was called the Tarantella Tavern. They would call it Tarantulas. So it was all dangerous in there. <laughs> and, um, um, but, all, you know, these other CD bands had come in there and, they they sort of that'd be their watering hole after their their shows, you know, because we were the latest playing band, you know, we'd be playing it at three in the morning. They a lot of people have checked out this guitarist in his band, Ie I, me, mm-hmm. and, and so what happened was that when people needed a guitar player, if their guitar player couldn't go off with them to do some regional wedding somewhere. Yes. Somebody had asked me, hey, some of you down at uh, Tarantella Tavern and I like you playing, you know, do, do you reckon you could fill in for our guy, he can't do it, he's sick, you know, it's $500 for you. i say
0: happened, no.
1: This happened all the time. Right. Like right, for for the the rest of, we were into 1976 now, for the rest of 1976, I seem to be this big go-to guitar player, no fuss kind of guitar player that, would go and do these gigs and I ended up being in some band that was way shittier than Trouble Waters as their (laughs) guitar player and I hated every second of it because they had me in it because I was a no-fuss guitar player but, you know, the drummer would be kind of making cracks about, oh, you know, the other guitarist, you know, even Kim's nearly as good as him. (laughs) And it's like, (laughs) so so I kind of thought, you know, these guys screw them, you know, I hated it, you know, they were kind of rough.
0: Yes, yes, that would be, that would be quite, and what, what, I was just going to say, what guitarists were you sort of, kind of influenced by, because most people talk about, I don't, Keith Richards or Chuck Berry or somebody like that, was there anybody in particular that you were, you know, looking at as a sort of role model?
1: Well, I've gone through all of them, you know, really, Um, so, you know, early on it was, it was John Fogarty and Jimmy Page and um you know then Mick Ronson and uh you know Tony Iommi and just about any guitar player then I got I found out more about blues so there was kind of um blues guitar players um and then um I got really heavily into the blues at one stage when I by the time I was about 16 but um yeah so a, just about everybody really you know, yes the blues rockers like blues rock players like johnny winter there was like um i don't know you know there were people like mick ronson were definitely um mark bolan you know
2: um, yeah i mean
0: because in in like with new york with cbgbs and then max's kansas city i mean that was the sort of city that was really in poverty you know, and, and sort of the authorities were sort of letting it sort of basically fall apart almost during that period. So there yes. was, you know, really cheap rent. And in the UK, there was huge amounts of unemployment and political unrest. What was Perth like uh, during that kind of 70, 76, 77 period? Well, it, yeah, it was kind of a massive
1: contradictions Because look, look at Perth, it's probably like the loneliest outpost of the British Empire. And really what it is is it's a place that, you know, a colonial place that's been colonized in a most brutal way, but we're kind of insulated from that mm. uh, in actual fact i've got um i'm got eighth part aboriginal blood in me you know my grandmother was um what what they call half caste aboriginal but we didn't even know this in the family so right but um but it's it's so that's a kind of a contradiction in itself you know you kind of don't know that there's Um, you know, I I hadn't probably seen a full-blood Aboriginal person in in the whole time growing up in Perth, but, you know, two suburbs away, there were probably people living in absolute dire poverty. I lived in a fairly working-class suburb, you know, in sort of like a a housing development, but in Perth that meant houses that were detached from each other, so they were sort of bungalow-y type places, but they were cheap, and it was called state housing, so my 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 family was kind of working class but yes. my, dad, my dad was a union guy so he and he he was like a brilliant um union guy he, he rose and rose and rose so we were kind of working class on a high income and even though he was self-educated he was like that. he left school at 13 he was very he was a clever guy obviously so it was my mum, but you know, they're, they're, they're smart people, but um, I think she was really behind him, pushing him and directing his career. which He, he was into that working for the uh, Minister for Labour in, in right. the state. And then he went back to unions and he was sort of a, a state secretary for different unions, you know, and um, so really commanding um, quite a, a high income.
0: Because during period. the 60s there'd been that period where, um, you know, quite a few not a lot of Australians, went back to the UK or went, no, just went to the UK like Clive James and was there a sort of a, a cultural theorist, you know, Robert, was it Robert Hughes and the guy um,
1: yeah, yeah, an art critic really,
0: Yeah, and then then art, your most famous person, the comedian who I've now who does all the, Dame Edna Everidge Yeah,
1: Barry Humphreys, yeah, Barry Humphreys.
0: Yeah, They awesome. all sort of came to London, didn't they during the 60s and I think kind yeah, of almost stayed yeah. there. Was there that
1: reverse thing going? It was like a lot of working class English people came out to Australia too and I think one of the first destinations was Fremantle, funnily enough, um, but they had the, what we call the 10 pound pom.
0: Oh god, a, of course,
2: yes.
1: They had come out to Australia for, for 10 pounds and so we had, I mean, so really, you know, you look at ACDC, they're kind of like 10 pound poms. Even yes. Is- um, and, and, so there's this kind of, Mixture going on all around the country. Um, up, up the road from where I grew up, there was there were housing estates, high rise places, and the suburb was Lockridge. I mean, it sounds scary, doesn't it? Lockridge. Yes. That was um, full of English immigrants, and um, there was lots of um, uh, European immigrants around that way. The high school that I went to basically was that very working class kind of place. It was rough.
0: Right. It was
1: rough place that I went to for my high school, and which is one of the reasons why I retreated to my bedroom in the end because I tried to be rough like some of the kids around and didn't cut it and kind of hit in my bedroom with a guitar. Yes, so, well, the
0: wh- wise yeah. choice. Yeah. So that's
1: really, you know, I got in one too many fights and thought this is not for me so um
0: unless you unless you can punch hard it's hopeless isn't it
1: yeah so i could you know i could do much better with a power cord i found
0: yeah so what was but, your next what was the next band because <clears throat> was that sort of 78 you had the was it exterminators which was your well, follow-up well, band
1: I hadn't really covered the scientist thing that what what happened was i in the end with the cheap nasties in 76 everybody was kind of saying you know by this time dave faulkner had he was like the guru of um, punk rock in the town, and he, well, in, in amongst my group of peers, anyway, he, he decided he'd take it on as well. And he he, he was a very smart guy, and he figured out he'd had a you know he had a, he built up a cool record collection, and at one he even spent a week. We we tried out him as a singer in the Cheap Nasties, and I think we tried to get a singer, and we ended up with a guitar player um singer who. Was Neil Fernandez. So, um, and sort of failingly continued, but um, they, all, they these guys said one day, I heard that came back to me, they said, oh, Kim just wants to play in these cabaret bands, you know. So We'll, we'll go on without him. And I thought, I started the Sheep Nasties, so I can't do that. So I was back, with quit the cabaret bands, and we went gung ho at it. And um, by by mid, by no, no it was April '77. We had our first proper gig with um, this band that Dave Faulkner happened to be in. But it was a blues band. He got himself playing keys in a blues band. He mm. was in town. They were called the Beagle Boys, and <laughs> they they were friends of ours, and they let us support them. And that was our we we public. You know, we put leaflets around everywhere. That's all we could do, really. But At this gig, um, every um, potential punk rocker in the woodwork came out of that woodwork and met all these people that we'd never seen before and one of them was James Baker and uh, he was this guy with a Ramones haircut. Right. And um, he, he, you know, they all sort of, that was at this gig, this Sheet Nasties gig and... Um, all these people we met. There was like Rod Riddells and Boris Sudovic were at this gig, and um, there was a whole bunch of them. So Dave met up with James, and I think they agree, they agreed to start a band at that very gig. And so it was quite a pivotal meeting. That thing, and uh, within for the rest of the year '77, then Cheap Nasties gigged around the place, and the Victims, which was this band they formed. And they, they were so punk, they were way more punk than the cheap nasties. They were sort of because they switched over from keys to guitar, which he couldn't play. And James was a very, he's,
2: he had two drum beats that he could play. Right. <laughs> Played them very
1: well. And that one not to be the Ramones beat. Been... <laughs> and the other was like the the doubled up time version of that. So, <laughs> you know, that was like an even faster beat. Um. So that was uh, this band, this three-piece band, The Victims, became the sort of the band in Perth that was the punk band that people knew about. So there was a bit of a scene. There was Cheap Nasties playing their new wave. Yes. Which I didn't. I I hated this whole idea because I thought we were, you know, we were the first, (laughs) second fiddle to, you know, to to the victims. But... um, so the cheap nasties probably sounded a bit like the vibrators and the damned or something like that, you know. Yes. A kind of, Bit of a pop edge to it, to their sort of snarliness. And they had two guitars. And um then um I don't know. Over the over the time the course of time with the nasties, um, the other guitar player Neil and me. Would he was very happy he he when the idea of new wave came along, he was real happy. he thought, oh, this is great, we can be new wave you know yes, and I was like, oh, no, no, let's be like the stooges let's be, let's be heavy let's <laughs> um and the band, because they you know Neil was great at writing a pop song, so i I kind of got i owe it to Neil for sort of teaching me how to actually write a song because he could write it he he he, uh, he didn't have any aspirations like I had he just was into the blues before punk came along and
2: played simple songs mm-hmm. so um
1: he just he, he it was there was no no jump for him to you know do a very simple three chord number with a simple melodic song so so what would happen was i i'd, I'd add a bit to his thing because i you know out of jealousy i say that's rubbish you know you need this and He'd do the same for me, so between us, we developed good songwriting because this is whatever, this is great, yeah. Whatever it, was lacking, so we there was a song that he wrote called Hit and Run, and I just thought oh, it's kind of ordinary. And I thought Let's do it in the minor key and let's put all this kind of jagged guitar. It was what we I chucked all these television licks, like, um, there was little licks that I'd learned out of friction from.
2: Markey Moon. Yes.
1: Was there and I said, let's let's do go on a guitar excursion, but it won't be like a you know blues wank. It'll be this kind of atmospheric thing, you know. So we used to do that every night, and that was our show-stopping piece because it was jagged and arty sounding, and the song had a great vibe to it. Uh, I, I I filed that away in the head. I was thinking this is great. That was Neil's song, but I, I felt that I my contribution to it was to give it that atmosphere. Yeah, and did I had a, a yeah?
0: I was going to say, did you see the the Beatles' eight hours of Let It Be? They just watching.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. I suppose I'm going to have to see it one day. I did.
0: Well, bizarrely, I thought, oh, sod it. I'll just subscribe to Disney Channel for one month. I'll watch it. I'll probably find it quite boring. But everyone said, oh, no, it's brilliant. So I thought, wow, I'm sure it won't be that great. And I sort of started watching it each evening and it was absolutely gripping. You know, in eight hours, you know, you just kind of kept wanting to sort of have another sneaky half an hour, another hour, you know, just to get the next bit because it's like so engrossing. So, you know, what that the relevant point was that that kind of songwriting between the band a live band, and especially between Paul and John, you can see why some of their solo work wasn't quite as good as when they were just together, just writing and and sort of giving each other those kind of, no, let's try this, no, let's try that. And then eventually it's like, oh my God, that's a classic, you know. And there's a great bit where Glenn Johns, they're trying to put the album together and he goes, still working on more material saying, what's that one about the long, long road you've got? And it's like, oh, okay, I'll bet better... we could go and revisit that. And it's like one of the classic songs of our time, isn't it? So it's just, it's just kind of interesting watching the, the way a band can sometimes develop an idea to be a classic you know so um i could yeah. imagine you and neil having that relationship at times we
1: were, it was actually you know we were just too immature at the time you know to really uh, and, and didn't have enough opportunity we, didn't, we weren't forced to, to work with each other ultimately what happened was we we thought one day after a rehearsal got tired of the fight and said oh you know what let's chuck this in and we looked at each other and we became friends again. <laughs> and we we, we the band up. But what happened was, because um, I, 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 by that stage, Neil had developed a formula with his songwriting and I felt it was a bit too formulaic. And the band, it was like Ken and Mark with their, like I say, their, their abilities were rudimentary, but by that, this stage they were really good at playing that groove that Neil had, so... They were a really tight-ass band with this great groove. They could yes. Chug away <laughs> they could do that Sex Pistols chug better than the Pistols any day. They were really good at that. That was all they were good at. They did that brilliantly. <laughs> and so, um, you know, so it wasn't long before those guys, and there was also a singer who had been come into the band over the course of time, this, art, this really handsome, tall art school mate of mine called Robbie, and um, he he was sort of very charismatic. Um, But um, So they all stayed together because they knew what side their bread was butted on. I was frustrated with the songwriting aspect of it, so I kind of didn't really want to go back to it. So they reformed without me (laughs) a few weeks later, and I just had to wear that idea and think, well, you know, maybe in the course of history people will realise it wasn't just because I was the biggest asshole in the band. <laughs> there was something else going on. Um, and, so what, did uh, they, what was
0: the band that they formed then?
1: It, it was called The Mannequins. Right. It was a band that became very popular in Perth. They right. Very popular. It never got beyond Perth, but they were like the hippest band in town for a while. They were like the main rivals of the scientists and way more popular most of the time because it was easier to like them Because the scientists. This is why I'm coming to the scientists. What happened was one of these guys that I mentioned earlier, um, Rod Rodowles and his mate Boris, these guys were of um, Slavic origin. They were sort of, you know, I was saying
2: about the um, housing estates. Yes. If you go a little bit further out, you'd get market gardens
1: and there'd be more immigrants there. They came from those regions, but they, they were the sort of guys that went to my high school too. They didn't go to my high school, but it was that kind of thing. So it was all very working class, I suppose. Um, And these guys decided they'd start a punk band and teach themselves to play as well. And they started a band called The Exterminators. And Rod took pity on me, although I think it was really, he just sort of saw an opportunity and let me sing for his band. He wouldn't let me play the guitar because he didn't want to look bad. You know, he'd only just started playing right boris had taken up the base and he got rather good because boris was a smart guy Not rod rod wasn't was no deal but he was a weirdo he rod, rod was like the state chess champion but you know if you met him and spoke to him you think this guy's off the planet you know excellent But that um, but, but groovy looking guy really good looking johnny thunders kind of looking cool cool as Food, you know so i thought i'm going to be in this band with roddy you know that's that's going to be a cool band you know and i thought we'd go the way i wanted to go like the stooges of the velvet underground but um you know the band's skills were somewhat limiting and it wasn't a popular band people just thought oh yeah yeah okay whatever um and then the victims broke up and i thought we've got to get james james into our band and fortunately, Roddy and the drummer of the. <laughs> well, it wasn't called the Exterminators. As soon as I joined, Roddy changed the name to the Invaders, which I thought wasn't as good as the Exterminators. But, no. Um, but uh, it all kind of has a. I don't know. <laughs> has a sort of a. Um, as you could say, there's a bit of a colonial vibe to it in a funny sort of a way. But anyway, that's the side. I. I um, uh, persuaded James to have a jam with us. And he said, well, I'll join as long as you do play the guitar because I think it's stupid you not playing the guitar. So we had this jam and the the funny things that happened in this first jam were that we must have written about four songs, James and I. I said, have you got, what have you got? You you know, he he wrote a lot of songs for the victims and he sort of had this idea and it was like, a song called "Pretty Girl," which sounded like the Easy Beats or something, and he was—he attempted to sing it, and of course, he—he he, he can't sing. The guy—I'm sure he's tone deaf. I could sort of get the beat and the phrasing. Yes, I, I'd play it until, and, and as soon as it sounded good, he said, "Yeah, that's how it goes." And that was kind of—we wrote about four songs in that session. I, I kind of think "Frantic Romantic" was from that, that session. Excellent. So we, we just kind of like had these songs, you know. That if if it wasn't in that session, it was very soon after. So we just kind of it was a natural combination. It once again was a little bit more poppy than the Stooges Velvets thing that I wanted to do, but it was uh, it was too good a thing, and and I'd sort of get Roddy to double up on the guitar that I'd do, and there was a sound there straight away, mm. and with his primitive drumming and. Um, it, it, it's it was like this. It was a very punky sound, really trashy, garagey punk sound. This band had it was like like the victims, but with but with jangle and melody as well. So we just thought, well, we're onto something here. This is a kind of, um, you know. And I think the, the the term power pop was being bandied about at the time too. And we didn't. I don't. I don't think we necessarily wanted to be
2: that, but it sort of. I think we got lumped into this idea of power pop. Yes. Well,
0: I suppose there had been bands like, I suppose the Buzzcocks had started to really polish their sound, hadn't they? And the Damned had slightly got their sound a bit more polished as well. But the the Buzzcocks especially were just, they wrote perfect three-minute songs, didn't they?
1: Yeah. And it was like very much like that. And there was a band called The Boys. Oh, yes. um, James loved them. It was like Brickfield Nights, you know. There was that song, you know that one, Brickfield Nights? Yes. It's got this beat to it. It goes boom, 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 and the guitars chugging away going that, and it's kind of like a real sort of part filled spectre, part sex pistols kind of thing. There's two different things there, and we that's what we wanted to have. That was going to be our stock in trade. So we had songs that had that, we stole that idea wholesale. Yes. Um, but we had other things that were kind of like, there was a song called Baby You're Not For Sale that was just two chords, but it really sounded more like Roxy Music and Brian Eno and Velvet Underground. It was very melodic, but it just went on forever. <laughs> it was like Because it was like, it, like we thought, like Sister Ray, but it was a melodic din. Yes. It was a it was absolute blurring din, but it became our showstopper. We'd do this song and people were in a trance. But um, But I think... The trouble with the scientists was what it was it was too much of a mixture of things there was a bit of this new york velvet underground vibe there was a bit of heaviness and there was this strong pop thing and it wasn't as simple as say the mannequins you could get what that was or there are other bands by this stage in you know 1978 we're talking now that that had that were sort of like very english and we weren't necessarily very we had flaming groovies and heartbreakers influences in our sound as well, yes, as, as arty sounds and it was it wasn't wasn't it it was all a very simple sound that we made, and it had coalesced, but I think people in perth just they wanted they, you know as far as their new wave went, they wanted pill. <laughs>
0: Yeah, was it was it quite hard to get gigs? You know, because obviously you're a bit more. You know, it's not like you know, as you know, the UK very. You know, probably very well. It's a tiny little place, but it kind of for most bands, you know, they especially during that period. Were, you know, we had the gatekeepers. You know, we had three weekly music papers. We had John Peel, Janice Long, Kid Jensen. And every little city in town had an alternative indie night, didn't they, which was often on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday, you know, when they couldn't, they couldn't sort of, you know, they thought, well, look, let's give it to an indie night rather than sort of Friday or Saturday. So you could quickly get around the country playing in front of, you know, lots of different people. So at least you weren't playing just in front of your friends and family and anybody else you could emo- emotionally blackmail to go and see you so i just wonder what it was like kind of in a place like perth
1: um it was a yeah it was a sprawled out city lots of suburbs so in in some ways it could sustain and, and it was very isolated sprawled out but then you get to a certain point there's nothing so you got to you've got to travel you've got to drive for three days to get to the nearest next capital city you've got to go across the desert yes you know. Or you got to be able to afford to get on a plane, so it's not going to happen. You, it was very lonely outpost, and so it was sort of self, You know, things were kind of came in and got wrong. You know, it was like radio waves came and got distorted. It was like every, it was like, out, everything, was out of space. Everything in another place. So bands didn't tour Perth when they were touring Australia. They didn't. They didn't come over to Perth. It was too hard to get to generally. Maybe once or twice, I think we saw the tourists, funnily enough. Right. And, boy, were they rude to us Perth people. They were like, bloody Annie Lennox was like, oh, God, you're not a princess. <laughs> she was <laughs> symbolic, really snotty. It was like, oh, this Perth. Oh. And so "Don't, Dave Stewart. Look, I'm sure they're lovely people. And, you know, good on them for going on and forming the rhythmic. So I, I thought hats off to them, off to them for doing that. Because that was, that was a shitty band, the tourists. <laughs> <They were laughs> nothing. Any, any Perth band would have wiped the floor with them, you know, with, for originality.
2: Yes. So,
1: um, you know, I think we saw Dr Feelgood, you know, I think they came through, but that was well after Wilco was with the band. He right. Through, Milk you know, and Alcohol, yes. Good. So bands would occasionally make it over. And that would probably be really influential, you know, after that band had come through. Uh, after the Feel there was a lot of blues bands back again, you know, pub bands. After, after The Cure came, every band that started up sounded like The Cure. So it was very kind of samey. Yes. And, uh, it, it'd, it'd, we'd get a signal from outer space and then try and copy it, but get it completely wrong. So... <laughs> got lots of different signals from over there got them all increasingly wrong but we were, had a much richer blend and perth did not want to know about it so we ended up making that drive in, in at the end of 1979 we'd recorded frantic romantic and somebody in adelaide had heard this single and said that's amazing this thing you did that and James was a very enterprising chap and he'd also sent 500 copies over to Greg Shaw with Bump Records, you know. So we'd we'd sent 500 of those. over. So we were label mates with Flamin' Groovies and, you know, um, Iggy Pop and James Williamson with Kill City, you know. It was like...
2: Yeah. So the idea was, even though we just had a single and it didn't have a label identity, it was
1: frantic romantic. We went to... This guy got us over to Adelaide and then a guy from Melbourne booked us gigs in Melbourne. And a friend of James booked us gigs in Sydney, and people from Radio Birdman were coming to see us. And it was like they got us over in the Eastern States. We people got the scientists there. They didn't get us in Perth, and we did this two month tour. And thought we got to go back. We can't stay in Perth. So we after this was like in this period of time we're in now. Mm. It finished actually just before, and then. We actually managed to get another tour of two months of the East Coast again that lasted two months as well. It was two months, and that was within a couple of months of this tour. So, at the start of 1980, and we actually got on to the, the national pop TV show of Australia in Melbourne. It was called Countdown. It was the, the make or break show, TV show. You know, that's where Ava first broke it probably anywhere in the world, was on this show.
0: Fantastic.
1: So we thought, oh, you know, and that was the last gig we played uh, um, in this Eastern States tour. And we went back to Perth and we are forgotten. It was like it made no difference. Perth did not get us. Perth did not deserve us. We hated Perth. We, we broke up. We split up. And that was the end of the scientists. Some friends and... People persuaded us to record another album, so they, that was the Pink album, and that was done posthumously, and it was we had enough songs, we but we, we we barely scratched the surface of the material we had with that Pink album. We had loads more, but it was this band that <laughs> didn't belong in Perth, and um, I think I started up another band with um, this bass player called Kim Williams, who was a one of these high-fidelity record shop type guys, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd sort of say, oh, I like this, and he say, well, you really should be listening to the DBs, you know. And <laughs> or, or Willie Alexander, you know. He's got his song called Kerouac, you know. Yes. So you kind of is kind of, persuasive, but, you know, I'm telling this guy, Kim, I'm saying, look, oh, i got this idea, you know, the cramps, I've been listening to them, I reckon, I love it. That's what with we scientists were trying to do, this primitivism, you know, that primitive beat, but they just take it to that level, take it back to where it comes from, but somehow reinvented as the craziest music you've ever heard. We could do something in, in that way but our own thing. And he's saying, yeah, okay, we could do a bit of that, but let's do a bit of this power pop stuff, you know, big star, big star, and it's like, yeah, okay, big star. So we start this band, it's called Louie Louie, and it's kind of, We've got this drummer called Brett Rickson, who's sort of kind of a charismatic kind of a thug um, he's got this really cool looking mullet haircut, he's you know gorgeous looking cool drummer, so he's he's playing with with us so um and uh, you know so there's this really unlikely three piece band, and we've tried to get some gigs, and once again the mix was too weird, but we in this time i I, I said to him, look, I've got this idea. It's, uh, I want a melody that's kind of a bit like Roy Orbison or something because that's this cramps thing, you know, mm. it's a domino. <laughs> and and we got to have this lick, you know, a real primitive blues lick but a hook. And it was sort of I like, oh, and I practically stole it off Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. It was, you know, that, that Johnny, that, that shaken all over thing. And I think we've got to have, a, but we've got to have an urban, post-urban, so sort of, you know, um, jagged guitar refrain. And that was like, I took that from the Cheap Nasties thing. I had this stuff in my head and I said, and here's the chorus. And I had a bit of credence in it. And a bit. But it was a weird, it was once again a strange mix. And I uh, said to him, look, the chorus goes, in my heart is a place called Swampland. Can you write me a song around this? And, you know, here's the verse. It's sort of just E, we just got an E. And then, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll go up a semitone to give it the urban, crazy, you know, post-punk vibe. And so he comes back with his brilliant lyrics and, you know, so we write that and that's just, but that's just a song in our set, you know, hurt, they didn't get it, but it was there. It was a cool, cool song. I love playing it and Swampland, obviously, was the song. And um, so, um, yeah, Boris Sudovic, the original bass player of The Scientist, sees us one day and he's saying, Kim, what are you doing, you know? He'd been over and living in Sydney and he's saying, there's all these bands that kind of copy you guys, us guys, you know? They're sort of like there's the riptides and there's the sunny boys and they're just doing what scientists did naturally, you know. And you've got to go. We kill it over there. And he persuaded me. And Kim didn't want to leave Perth, and that was good for Boris because Boris was the bass player. <laughs> Kim, wanted to stay, Kim wanted to stay in his groovy record shop. Yes. <laughs> and you know, be the guru of you know. Well, if you like this, you will like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know, that whole thing what was the one in in high fidelity it was like if you like um green day you should listen to stiff little fingers
2: <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> he was that character so excellent <laughs> but i have to give him credit for writing a, one of the most brilliant songs lyrics ever you know so um yeah, Boris persuades me, um, James Baker won't come over because well, well he's already going over because he's been asked by Dave Faulkner to join his band with Roddy, who's the you know, the other the old guitar he'd long fallen by the wayside in the side
2: yeah.
1: So and they're called you know, they're called the Hoodoo Gurus. Dave thought up the guru part, and Roddy thought up the hoodoo part. I know this, and it was that's what happened. And um, so they'd started up in Sydney, and James was already with them. So I asked Brett Rixon, who was a better drummer than James anyway. <laughs> I said, "Can you join us? Me, me, Boris, and you." Yes. So we went on. We went over to Sydney, and in the interim, I think we'd um, before the scientists had broken up. Um, we were looking for another guitarist, because Ben hadn't worked out he was too much of a hippie for us, even though he wrote that great hook for the song last night, we thought he was too much of a hippie. So we were looking for another guitarist, and this guy had seen us, this guy from a country town, his name is Tony Fulis, and he'd seen us, he was 300 miles out in the middle of nowhere, and he'd seen us on TV on Countdown, and he thought, I'm going to town, I hear they're looking for a guitar player, I'm going to join that band. And the gatekeepers of the scientists, Ian and James, didn't didn't give him a chance. <laughs> I saw him in a club one night and thought, Jesus, they passed this guy up. He's brilliant. He's like Johnny Thunder's on steroids. He's kind of
2: it's it's nuts. How could how could they? They didn't obviously had not seen him play. Yes. And, and uh,
1: Tony, oh, we we got drinking one day. We met up. He borrowed an amp, a speaker cabinet off me under the guise of. He had a plan, and it worked. He plied me with a few beers, and I said, look, why don't you come and join this band we're, we're reforming over there with the scientists? And he was saying, ah, oh, yeah, cool. So he, little did he know that we, were, we, we discovered the cramps <laughs> and we were doing this other kind of thing. It wasn't just the cramps. We, we very much wanted to have our own thing, but he joined up. We met him in Sydney. He, he made the trek himself. And um, I think, really, if you want to compress history into it, we got into a rehearsal room and had a pretty crazy sound. It was nuts. And we kind of developed the sound of that Mark II scientist because it was like he he didn't really get the cramps thing, but somehow his playing was an expression of his own frustration. But little did he realise how perfect it was for what we wanted to do. So we had this... Twin guitar assault that was kinda of, it was unbeatable it, but it wasn't like blues guitarists. it was crazy wild fucked up guitar playing and um the the you know Boris was very much at the primitive one two note school, and Brett was very open minded and we kind of worked on a whole lot of crazy beats because we wanted to be as far out as possible, crazy and primitive yes. But. So that's kind of the sound the scientists in Mark II is. That's what it is. Yeah. That's what it still is. That's the sound of the band. It's kind of that strange combination that's sort of all compressed into this or coalesced into something. It's not really compressed, it's coalesced.
0: Yeah, and you quickly sort of went into the studio and sort of recorded your first album, didn't you? The was it the the uh, Blood River, Blood Red River heap album?
1: Yeah. Well we noticed here yeah, this is the thing. We were in Sydney and it wasn't like Perth. People got the scientists. And Sydney was like in the the sort of in the grip of post Birdman fever. So they they were looking for something to take over. And of course every band in Sydney is like a copy copy of one aspect of Radio Birdman. You got your more Nuggetsy versions of Radio Birdman, you've got your more blue oyster culty versions of Radio yeah. Birdman. You got your you know and we're just thinking, screw them. I mean, we deliberately thought, screw Radio Birdman, even though we were kind of mates with the guys. <laughs> screw that, screw that. We don't, we're not going to copy anybody. Um, so, um, and that's that's what Sydney needed to take over for its cool underground band, you know, inner city underground band. We were it because. They didn't need another Radio Birdman. They needed something else, and we provided
0: it. Because it's kind of, but being from the UK, you know, listening to John Peel and looking at the NME every Wednesday. I mean, there was, you know, we were very excited because obviously there was the sort of the indie sounding bands like the the Triffids and the the Go Betweens. But then we had, you know, um, the Lime Spiders, the Hard-ons. And um, obviously the Saints, but they sort of they were around from the sort of late mid to late seventies. Mm. So well, did you sort of feel that it was kind of a wave of kind of exciting Australian bands that had just started to really, you know, become kind of I don't know global, so to speak. Oh yeah, and Die Pretty, my God, Die Pretty. I
1: love them. I love them. You know, Ronnie, who's a, you know, I've got a band with him now. You know, do you know this? No. Oh, he and I play in a duo. Called the Darling Downs, and we we, it's completely acoustic, but it's like ah, um, oh, it's, it's it's weird. It's sort of bluegrassy, but it's kind of it's 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 very much our own thing. But um, we've done three albums of it, and it's almost the opposite of what Scientists and Died Pretty is, but at the same time, it contains those elements.
0: Oh, and, um, yes, well, they, you know, I just always remember hearing that sort of particular track which fades in at the Died Pretty album, which now I can't remember, Blue Sky or something, was it? um oh,
1: well, they, they, they were a wonderful band, I loved them, but Ron was a huge scientist fan before they took off. It was like, he was a crazy guy who I met um, one day and he was straight out of a carry-on film the way he spoke. <laughs> 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 um but uh, you know every sentence he uttered was an innuendo but
0: excellent <laughs> and, uh, we love well, that don't very we
1: very camp sort of fellow but but lovely guy and a huge fan of the scientists and uh, uh we became very good friends um but um you know when i saw them when they started up i couldn't believe just how brilliant he was as a frontman he's a you know, skinny, strange looking guy, not you know <laughs> who suddenly transforms into um like part E.
0: Pop part Mick, Mick Jagger, you know, suddenly he's transformed. And I suppose you had the Moodist as well, didn't you, with um
1: Dave Granny and Claire Moore, yes. So well I loved them. I, I I kind of felt that they were like kindred spirits. He, he died pretty and the moodists to what the scientists were doing. I didn't, you know, we got I didn't feel Naturally enough, you know, people like the Lime Spiders and um, Celibate Rifles, you know, we'd get lumped in with them because of our Sydney connection. But, you know, Spaniards would think that we are all arm and arm around in a pub singing, you know, Birdman songs together.
0: Yes, but no. It wasn't
1: actually the case. <laughs> <laughs> Especially but the Lime Spiders. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was sort of... Uh, Those guys were good, there's no doubt about it. I liked all of those bands, but I felt that we would... I didn't really want to be associated with other bands because it would sort of... We felt we'd be contaminated.
0: Yes. And what
1: was... away. But, you know, like the Moodists were maybe our only friends, you know, we didn't really gravitate towards the Triffids, even though back home we would have... You know, we we tried to avoid it because we thought, oh, God, this is going to be bad for us, you know, so... It was just that because Dave Graney was good enough to reach out to me a lot of times, you know, he phoned me up out of the blue. and uh, So um, maybe he felt the same. Maybe he felt we were kind of like kindred spirits. I, I felt we were sort of because there was something that, um, you know, I've got to tell you, years and years later, now Mick Turner, who was a guitarist in the 33. And yes. He was in the Moodus and uh, he couldn't. There was a Reformation Moodus gig and he couldn't do it and he asked me to fill in for him. We we're talking 1996 or something like that. No, not 1996, 2006. Sorry, 2006. So I thought, great. So I'm inside the band and I'm kind of like they're doing this song, The Six Dead Birds or something. And I'm thinking, this, you know, this reminds me of when the scientists did the spin and there's another song and I'm thinking, oh, this is their take on the way I walk. And so I could hear this with, before. Uh, they, they, were, they they had this strange atonal kind of sound that I couldn't make heads or tails of. But in the band, I could, having to play it, I thought, oh, so you're all trying to play this song, and then you're all trying to now. This our version of that is when fate deals its mortal blow. And our version, and Dave said, "Him, we let you into our house... You pull it down. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, so he's you know a funny guy. But um, so that was just an interesting thing that we were we're sort of coming at the same thing from a completely different way, different people, different come up with a different result.
2: Yes,
0: and then sort yeah, just... of I was just going to say, going back to, to 1984, that famous, iconic year, you started touring, you know, Europe and, and Great Britain. What was that kind of like? Because obviously this is kind of, it must feel quite an exciting moment when you suddenly hit the plane and then you're sort of on completely foreign territory.
1: Well, yeah, it's... um, I, Once again, I think particularly in... in um, around europe there seemed to be something that we provided that people i think there was for a start you said this australian thing i think the rock and roll baton had probably well and truly been passed to australia at this point and then it got passed on to america you know this is what sort of happened if you look at it there was like in england of course people had decided punk rock was dead and went on to neuromanticism and then every you know, every week there'd be a new faz and they'd Acted like well, punk rock was just another one of those. Yes. Whereas people elsewhere in the world had kind of latched onto something and ran with it, and that was what had happened in Australia. And then the same thing happened in New York, and then on the West Coast. I mean, I could have the time frame slightly wrong, but they, they sort of happened. You know, they were, each place had a bit. Of, you know, there was there was sort of hardcore coming out of you know with Rollins and um, Black Flag and all of that stuff, and uh, and Flipper and then you kind of got um, the New York sort of swans and sonic youth, you know, there's kind of this heaviness that sort of people, no, I'm, I'm not going to let go of this. I'm going to stay with this. It's not just a fad. This happened in Australia. And yes. We were, I feel like we were sort of the torchbearers of that in many ways. Um, and so in, in Europe, of course, was uh, the consumer of all of this stuff. Plenty of French bands that wanted to be the Cramps or the Scientists or something like that, but not too many of them really. There was too much of a sort of a, a postmodern interest in it to really be able to. You know, I don't know what it was, but it sort of seemed to happen all around Europe. So they wanted. There was a lot of some original bands happened in Europe. Don't get me wrong. You know, it was just that this this particular thing um sort of seemed to we we were providing it for a while um you know there was a bit of a touring scene that went on in europe for the scientists and then later on when i was in the beast suburban back in australia we'd be back touring in that same circuit and then one day on a band room wall i saw some names that i didn't get
2: mud honey and dinosaur junior and stuff and i thought what are these yes and the Europeans were suddenly buying that and
1: there's, that's, you know, the scientists and the beast suburban. well the beasts suburban were newer, so there was more interest in that, but, so it was like, oh, you've had your time now.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> I know. But I, I sort of realised doing the show, you know, like, there is this kind of, I mean, there there are loads, I mean been sort of looking I suppose at the 80s and there were more scenes I mean suppose this is more the UK but it could be other but you know I didn't really you know I got goth and indie and psychobilly and then anarchic punk and then there was shoegaze and then there's kind of rockabilly then there's yeah and it's like my god you know there's new romantic and the mainstream charts but I mean there were so many tribes during that one little period but then I also realized that most bands have a five-year narrative especially the UK where they get together you know you have your 12 month honeymoon you know John Peel would give you a play then you get a John Peel session the first album you do that little tour in the transit van around the UK things going well the second album a bit tricky third album it's like over but there are several reasons and it's almost like the next wave of 16 to 18 year olds are coming along and they're looking for their new band they don't really want somebody who feels almost a bit sort of like already been around a bit too long and yeah. have already on their third or fourth album and a sort of getting that sort of neuroticness that you can't be bothered with when you're 16. You think, I don't, you know, you don't want people going on about, I don't know, how difficult it is being on stage and being, you know, having issues about life. You know, you want people who are just a bit sort of fresh and new, don't you? So it is tricky because then, you know, like, I, I, you know, with the UK, in a really simplistic way, you know, there was the indie pop stuff from '83 to '87, which are the years of the Smiths. And when they broke up, Ecstasy came along, and then you had this whole rave kind of Happy Mondays, Soup Dragons, the you know, Primal Scream, uh, Stone Roses, and then you had you know the Seattle grunge scene and Four AD records with the Pixies and, throw and Muses, and then obviously Nirvana as well. So that all sort of sort of came along. So. Yeah, you know, it's, it's just kind of interesting how, how sort of different scenes come along. And for a band, it must be quite hard to keep that momentum going, really, mustn't it?
1: Yeah, I think with the scientists, because we never really broke out, we never really quite made it, because we weren't actually... If you look at our discography, it's, it's sort of singles and mini-LPs, and, and occasionally, you know, by the time... The, that Pink album earlier came along, the band was already over, you know, that, that early phase was over. And it was like looking back. When The Scientist's next phase was over, it was this album called Weird Love. And if you listen to that album, it's perfect. And I think, God, I wish we could have had an A&R guy understand us and some management would have said, this is really, you guys have got something because you can hear it all on this album. And we had the material, It was just that, the opportunities to record never really happened, so i I mean I know it's so I've got a of great belief in the band, but you
0: know it, it, what was because uh, did you relocate to the u k you know actually yeah. as in you lived yeah, there
1: no, we were there we were living in Notting Hill gate first we lived in or I lived in Brixton, and um then we located to Notting Hill gate I was there for three um three years. Tony was living with me for a while um And the band sort of had. We wanted. We were having everybody signing, wanting to sign us up. Uh, It was like a real honeymoon period. Every like we got to tour with the Sisters of Mercy and the Gun Club and the Banshees. We were this band that that Feather feathered the cap of all these cool bands. They wanted. They'd want us to tour with them. And this happened.
0: Did you Did you tour with Susan the Banshees when she broke her leg? And she had to sit yes, on us. A...
1: that's right, that's I right. Think
0: I, I think I saw you at the UEA at, in Norwich, didn't I? I think the scientists yes. were supporting yes.
1: yes, and we'd just got a new drummer because Brett had left and we tried some proper drummers and our, our tour manageress, Leanne, had taken it on herself to buy Brett's drum kit and eventually my girlfriend, slash wife, who was at one time doing the Spinal Tap thing and managing the band.
0: Excellent, she, with jumpers. Stonehenge. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. she, she says to me, you know
1: what, you guys are utter, utter bastards. Leanne would do anything for you guys and you haven't given her a chance. And I thought, yeah, the guy we got isn't working out. Maybe we should have a jam with her. And I had a jam with her and I said to the guys, hey, come and have a jam with Leanne. There's something going here." So we jammed and she's crap, absolute crap. But it sounds like the scientists again. You know, and, uh, <laughs> it was like, well, we can, we can work with this. So, on the eve of the Banshees tour, we sacked the poor US guy we had. His name was Phil. And um, we get Leanne, who's never played drums in her life. And we're playing in the biggest place in Glasgow
2: to all these Glaswegians that I only really want to see Susie. Yes. They're you know, throwing
1: things at us because we get on the stage and we think, what can we do? We'll we'll. Distract from the drummer for a start. We'll, 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 and we just put on the biggest punk rock show we possibly could, and they just didn't want, want to know about it. So there was things being thrown at us, and there was this big crash barrier, and I was coming across like Norman Wisdom or something, saying, "Lucky for you, there's this crash barrier here." You know? <laughs> and people, I kid you not, there was somebody. Or who, well, Tony reckons he saw somebody trying to bribe a bouncer to let him through to kind of take a swing at us. So. Um, So this was the scenario for this Banshees tour. Right. By the the end of the tour, Leanne's getting rather good. (laughs) You know, she kind of can hold a beat together for a full song and it's a steady beat, no flashy embellishments. It was stripped down, pared down, but it had the scientific nuance that Brett brought to the band. It was really something. So it it was like by the end of that tour... You couldn't have get a, got a more rock steady drummer. It was pure Nick Knox, you know. It
0: was right, so, excellent. So, um,
1: so when you get the by the time you know, that, I'm saying bands like the Banshees want us to support them. Record labels were wanting us to um, sign up, and of course, we found out very soon that we had a very We had a label in Australia that didn't really want to let us go, and that was really difficult. So that that kind of situation was really bad we weren't able to take up any offers eventually we did it was a label called big time that had the hoodoo gurus and they found out that there was a lot of trouble coming along with signing up the scientists and they said can you sort this out which we tried to and uh, so the band went had a lot of legal issues with this band It kind of practically killed the band and um with this you know label so it um was rather unfortunate but these are the things that happen to bands there's a lot you know it's so yeah
0: would it have um, been just easier to change the name of the band and just said and get a new record label or did you just have a thing about the scientists
1: ah uh, it, it was the, the quirks of fate really um what actually happened was um we did this record weird love it was quite a what a brilliant stunning album on big time, and it would have done well. We were going to then, it was basically our songs that people knew about all re recorded because we didn't have access to them due to the, the Aussie label. So we'd re recorded everything, but we'd done it with a really good producer, Richard Nazda, his name was, who produced The Fall and he'd had a hit with Mexican Radio. From
0: oh my God! The, the, oh my God! That Mexican Radio is one of the great songs of all time.
1: I know. And it's really you think about the things that were handed to the scientists and how close it was for us, but it just didn't happen. And you kind of got to realise that that's probably the case for so many people, and be philosophical about it. What happened with us was we kind of broke up again, and I um, I got together with my mate Nick, who was very much a kindred spirit of mine, and Tony and. We just thought, well, we've got some money um, from, from this big-time deal. Let's go into the studio and show them what we're really made of. And we recorded this album called The Human Jukebox, which is a really, really fucked-up crazy album, but it's kind of different. It's, it's the scientists, unmistakably the scientists. But yes. Do you know the album at all?
0: Only a bit, but not, not well enough. I just um, – it's kind of – it's a seven-track album, isn't it?
1: yeah again and it's broken up and it's really heavily deconstructed you know and um we were actually going to call it blue velvet but somebody told us there was a um David <laughs> film coming out so we thought better better of it and we decided to scrap our deconstructed cover of blue velvet and not put that on the record so really what this was was kim salmon and the surrealists in an earlier incarnation so if you listen to the first Him's having the surrealist album hit me with a surreal feel. I'm listening to Human Jukebox, there's not a lot of difference. (laughs) It's kind of the same band doing the same things, it's really quite fucked up, but but you can hear. I don't know, that's what that's what I think anyway. That's my take on it. So, um, yeah, so what happened was we were well, that we were there in London, and somebody in our somebody. Came to our door, and I was on the phone to our manager, um, Nick Jones. His name was, and maybe a big, long hour-long phone call, and um, my wife, um, Spinal Tap girlfriend Linda, was at the door answering to these property developers in this flat um, that we lived in. She seemed to be there talking to them for ages, and I got off the phone, and they said to me, "Mr. Salmon, um, we've been talking to your um, partner, and uh, we um, we're, we're buying this block of flats. Where we we but, but we want to develop, and we need you know maybe what what would it take for you to give us vacant possession of the place?" And we asked your wife, and she said. Um, uh, that she wouldn't consider doing anything for less than 30,000 pounds. I thought, oh, my God, this crazy bitch. (laughs) And I I said, you know, and thinking to myself, oh, that's so good, she doesn't manage the band anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I said, we were thinking something more to the tune of um, 25,000 pounds. So we'd like you to have to think about that. And so they left us and the pair were thinking, my God, that's in Australian money, that's like $75,000, you think. And then, you know, these property developers come back and say, look, you can have £30,000. <laughs> <laughs> so we just sort of, we just sold up. We were left, up, up and left and um, took our kid, Alex, and went to, back to Perth.
0: Blimey, that is just an amazing moment.
1: I know. So we thought, well, we've even bought a house and lived there you know, rent free, and me on the doll, and I formed the Surrealists.
0: God. And did Uh, you, I mean, in that time when you were just in in London, because I know that, you know, the the, the Triffids and definitely the Go-Betweens all sort of went and did, and I know they're from New Zealand, the Chills, they all came to London, didn't they, and sort of lived in different areas. Did you sort of have a little bit of a community with those other bands who were doing the same thing? They were often in squats, weren't they, and something called the Ambulance Station.
1: Not, I don't even know this. We, we we tried very hard to not be associated with other Australians. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, Dave Graney reached out to us, as I said, so, you know,
2: and that was nice.
1: I always enjoyed talking to him. So, But um, I knew he was entrenched in that scene. But um, I can remember going to a party and uh, us walking in there and there's Lindy Morrison waving her arms around holding court and thinking, my God, who is this gauche woman? Why is she? And, and um, there's um, this guy, Jeremy Gluck, he was, he was uh, um, the singer from the Barracudas, looks at us and says in his accent, no punks, <laughs> no punks allowed. Um, so that was a funny little moment. Was, he was joking, of course. Yes. Let's um, listen. So, so we kind of were at home, but we, you know our role was to be the outsiders. So um, you know, uh, I, I'd, I'd walk up Portobello Road on the way home and see this tall, boppish guy wearing similar sort of pointy boots to what we'd wear, similarly dressed, and that was Robert Forster.
0: Yes, dear old Robert. We didn't we didn't know we
1: didn't really know each other. It was, it was like, oh, it's you. you. You you're one of us, aren't you? But kind of different. <laughs> it was this look? so um
0: yes so was that quite a relief leaving the scientists and leaving london and going back to perth and starting well, a new life it,
1: it was but it wasn't it was really tough you know just back in perth was the wrong thing to do we i wasn't going to make it there. it was i was just going back to where i was with the scientists so we uh, I, that was in the period of time that the beasts of bourbon Uh, and the Surrealists kind of existed around the outskirts of that because uh, I'd get flown over to do some gigs and, and then go and record an album with the Beasts of Bourbon and I'd also kind of organise some shows for the Surrealists. So we kind of... Because we we ended up being in different cities, the Surrealists. So we'd just kind of steal moments, they were stolen moments that the Surrealists recorded their first three albums in. Was kind of, and we'd make it up. It was really literally like we got better at kind of sounding like a, a slicker kind of a slightly slicker band, but that the first album was pretty much deconstructed. I'd taken a lot from the idea of behind the Magnolia curtains and um, you know, um, like flies on sherbet by Alex Chilton. Right. Yes. Deconstruction in my head. it was this idea that nothing was ever formed. Everything was always forming, and it would change. It was. I believed in this universe. It was always kind of you were salvaging things in it. You weren't actually. Things weren't as concrete as people like to believe. This was. I had. I had some crazy notions going on, which I still keep it's still the idea yes
0: but the 90s i mean did you feel and find because you'd obviously been in music now this is your third decade was it were you able to keep the interest and and sort of the the focus going and and sort of yeah well, yeah enthusiasm
1: I, did, I managed to keep things going because the surrealists went and uh, eventually two other members ended up being in the they were perth guys they ended up being in the Beast Suburban, which is really strange because the first the, the first version of the Beast Suburban had the drummer Boris and James from the Scientists. So it was my bands that seemed to provide the rhythm section. Of the Beasts <laughs> Beasts <of Bourbon. laughs> in a lot of ways, it was like it was kind of a, it was it's the same but different, you know. It was, yes. Yeah, So I, that that was a. Band that seemed to have a bit of life for me to exist in, but I was really like a guitar player in that band and a songwriter. and I wasn't the singer, so in some ways it wasn't it wasn't my main focus. The Surrealists was, but the Surrealists lived in this strange existence. And so, when the other two Surrealists had joined with the Beasts of Bourbon and were no longer competing with them, it was we we recorded one album with the Surrealists post that that. Them joining the Beast's called Sin Factory, which is a brilliant album, but but it was kind of really when the band was kind of dying. So um, we we got toured, we got we got asked to join the Bad Seeds on tour around Europe on the basis of Sin Factory, and we got there was once again there these opportunities being handed to us, and we um, did a lot of touring and. Um, but,
2: um, How
0: did touring go? Because I can't remember who it was I did an interview with. He was connected a little bit with the Bad Seeds, but I think this is the early '80s, and it was kind of messy. There was just too many hard drugs, and they all got really wrecked. Did you sort of manage to sort of navigate away from those kind of murky moments and sort of well, keep I
1: think it? By that, by the time of the '90s, I think Nick had got himself off the gear basically, so. For him, it was more like I think whatever could replace it. So I think cocaine was very much the drug. (laughs) It was somebody's turn, every night of the week on tour with him, it was somebody's turn to buy some coke. Right. Including including us. So we kind of got through. I I sort of, it was wonderful to start with, but after a while, I thought, no, I'm burned out and this does nothing for me. I I was lucky it, it didn't become. Addicted to cocaine like Bowie or something. Yes. I I thought, ah, it doesn't work anymore. It was like the drugs don't work.
2: Yes. Um,
1: And and I just thought, ah, okay. So I I tried to pace myself on it and um, while not really stopping it, I kind of just, yeah, it was like, ah, this is kind of boring. I think um, it had taken its toll on Brian, the bass player, the drummer had long fallen by the wayside. Tony, he he become a hardened um, heroin addict, um, and we, you know, so and I think the band that I had had lost its drive to to make material work. So I kind of developed another band within, in that time, and it was bizarre because the band was two thirds of the Dirty Three it was Warren and um, Warren Ellis and Jim White and. Uh, I had, I had recorded one album called Hey Believer with them and it's, you know, it's sort of, <laughs> there's all these great moments and how do I get through all this? Um, it's a, you know, really lovely album. Um, but, of course, when we're on the road, 33 suddenly takes off and there's like, suddenly they're doing, they've got gigs offered and they're kind of like, it was like, okay, all right, so I can see I can't
2: keep those guys. Right. So they didn't stay. So, I don't know, I...
1: Managed to get an album. I got a new band around me, and we the new guys breathe life into it. i mean, the the bass player, Stu Thomas, plays with the Surrealist still, and he's absolutely brilliant. Um, um, you know, I, we recorded an album in, two, in 2020, which was completely improvised. We didn't have a song. The only songs I had were um, in my lyric book. I'd been writing sketches. It was sort of lyrics that didn't make it anywhere, but I thought they had good fine threads to them. And I just had them in this thing that I called the Book of Swamp. <laughs> <was just> my, <laughs> set, my set book that I worked out of for every band that I did full of Sketches and everything. And uh, somehow fate gave us a... Um, chance to record live stream. We've got about 7,000 people worldwide. Checking Amazing. We, we did, did it in a recording studio with a um, film production company filming us and streaming us. And um, it's over two hour-long sessions, one on a Saturday night and it was like June of 2020 when we'd come out of lockdown very briefly and then on the Sunday we did another one and um, this we make it it was like a this album really a double album that really was you can hear the workings of a band trying to salvage a song out of every moment and it's um the, the drummer in this lineup of the surrealist comes from jazz he's not really a rock guy so he's there big shitty eating grin on his face for the whole session and where me and stew because we're being filmed, we're wearing sunglasses because we want to hide the look of blind terror in our eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and, yes, and then I go back and listen to it, thinking, God oh, do we blown it, I've totally blown it." And I listen like, to it, and I think, "It's actually this is amazing. This has really got something to it. It's, nobody's really done this before. That it's, and we, you know, we managed because we're so desperate to salvage something at any moment, we managed to. We just, it's like you're on the edge of a cliff, and you just pull yourself over every moment so we released it so you know one of the, once again these things get lost but I've got it for posterity so I guess these are the things I've got it there it's, it's this double album
0: Despite that's amazing the- yes well you're, you're definitely, definitely going to have to watch the, the Beatles film now let it be because you'll be quite blown by the way they can at the very last minute, a band who had been obviously going for nearly ten years and were the Beatles, you know, right at the end, sort of just put together an album. And yes, a lot of the the a lot of the you know the the material they did live on the on the roof, you know, sort of when they're playing it, they're going, oh, yeah, this appears on the album, this appears on the album. You think, my God, you know, they're freezing cold in January in London, and these are the records that you know songs that appear on the album, you know, but you just think. They weren't that together the week before, you know, and they're happy to go with it, really, and put themselves out there. So there's nothing like being under a bit of pressure, really.
1: I guess I've got this idea in my head that, you know, in another universe, in another dimension, if you look at quantum, we were those guys, and they're us, and those things are happening to us, you know. I think that maybe, maybe you know, there's sort of certain kinds of people that can do... So, you know, get salvage something out of a situation and some people kind of resign to it. Yes. I think that maybe there were that, you know, and maybe it's sort of, you know, there's a whole lot of, so I kind of think, oh, well, you know, this is, in this universe maybe I haven't had a hit record, but in that one maybe I did, you know. Was, I know it's far-fetched and stupid, but. You
0: know. But you loved science fiction in the 60s, in your childhood. so no, that,
1: That's pure Kurt Vonnegut, so, you know.
0: <laughs> but before in the in the sort of late 90s you also developed two other bands did a tenor a tenor and the business as well
1: yeah they were just things that <laughs> antenna um that was when dave faulkner finally said to me you know we got to do something together and he'd, he'd broken up the hoodoo gurus and uh I said okay and then he said oh well, you know there's these guys these electro dudes that i've been working with you wanted to let them join and i thought oh, i'm pretty much letting him have free reign but we sort of get together so there's these techno housey guys there with their cubase stuff and there's me and dave so they call us the melody guys and <laughs> they're the producers and they kind of spend weeks in a room looking at screens you know we're pushing squares around maybe that's where square pusher got his name from. right yes around the screen there's dave saying now nah, move him over there and <laughs> dave, you can see why he's how suddenly i realized why he's had these hit records because he's so meticulous he's not some guy who's going to salvage anything out of a situation he's going to work it to death he's going to just you know and he's going to be the boss of it all too so it was really quite frustrating um for me i had to fight and fight every inch of the way to get my ideas through because he was going to trample on everything and say, no, we can't do that because of this, and this doesn't work because of this. And so, yeah, but I managed to, um, you know, and, and he did some brilliant stuff there. You know, he, he, his standards were way higher than mine. <laughs> I learned some things from, I learned some things about songwriting from him and we did actually work together. We actually did work together. We wrote some pretty cool stuff together but um that song come on spring is really uh, all of the melodic and chordal content is mine um the arrangement of it is dave's and the um ba 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 singing harmonies that sound a bit like the turtles is dave right so that and the beats belong to the producers which they stole from somewhere and would probably have a lawsuit if anybody discovered it, but <laughs> nobody <laughs> ever has, so who knows. So, But but it was never enough of a hit, but it was, it was a song. It still comes up every year, you know, um, around, around the first day of spring with radio stations, there'll be somebody plays it on the radio somewhere um, in Australia. And um, it's a song that's made me a reasonable amount of money over the even though I've only got a twenty five percent stake in the publishing, mm. um, the reality is I wrote it. Um, so um, I, it didn't work out with Antenna. I think once again there was too many things going on. People the the, the the dance crowd didn't want to buy into it because we were too eclectic. The um, rock crowd wasn't buying it. They loved to Come On Spring because it was a beautiful song but they weren't buying some of the other stuff. It was a bit difficult. It was just too hard to sustain it. But we had a moment in the sun there and um we um that was sort of the end of that. And um I tried to continue that thing with the business, which is really kind of came out of the dregs the not the dregs, the, the ashes of the Surrealists which were kinda around the end of the 90s, not really happening, but this happened and nearly, I nearly had a band that was going to, if I could sustain it, but the trouble was in order to have the sound, we needed to have the horn players in the band and they're a different breed of musician. They they don't work for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. During, because I became a pricey big production and it wasn't like, I, I thought, you know, for a while... We were getting the radio airplay. Things were happening, but I couldn't sustain it financially for long enough, and it was uh, quite a I, – I, it, it collapsed. So that's what the business was.
0: Yes. Was that quite a relief then to become then a, more of a solo artist and then to work with um, Ron, Ron Penno, and, and do, develop Darling Downs? Well, I'd really, that was just – I just
1: kind of got a straight job and thought, uh, I'm going to do music because I like it, you know. I'll just do an idea because I want to do the idea and not really like a hobby, but it'll just be my art and I won't really care about what happens with it and that's the way I've sort of worked till now, although what's happened by doing that is that I've ended up, being a musician is what I do for a living, you know, and that's where being an artist is what I... What I do, it's not, I don't have a straight job. Yes. Well, actually, I do, I teach music. I teach music. So, um, that, which is sort of me in music, you know. It's, it's a straight job, but it's kind of, I can make that work for
0: me. Yes. And that's, and that's, and and has the, um, has the band sort of come back together on, on sort of various occasions?
1: The scientist is really yeah. like, this is, in I got a manager at some point, and the one good thing he did do was to get me the, the scientists' back catalogue signed up to Numero, and they put things into a box set, and they put other stuff into reissues. So there's a reissue of the Pink Album and Blood Red River and Franny Romantic and Swampland, but there's also this great box set. And you hear anything, they because they, the scientists have far more reissues than they ever had proper albums.
0: Right. It's
1: a crazy band, because we hardly had any proper albums, but we had loads of reissue albums. We've had it's happened so many times. There's got to be something there, you know. So <laughs> the the numero thing rekindled interest. Tony was who lives in London was back in Australia for a snorkeling holiday. And we he said we could do some shows, you know. And I think, because we've got this box set and there's interest in it, so I thought, okay. And uh, we did this thing, was like him and me recorded this version of a Jacques Dutronc song called Mini, 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 just with no real drums, but we said it was drums. <laughs> and we made a single, a digital single, and put that around a tour and toured Australia and then kind of released it on a Spanish label called Bang and toured um UK and Europe with a um a an agency called Hot Pants and that was in 2018. So it sort of just sort of happened. And when we were touring Australia an artist called um he had a band was, he was under the name the Cairo Gang, but he was a solo artist by the name of Emmett and he he is like uh, Bonnie Prince Billy's guitarist and Ty Siegel's bass player slash guitarist.
0: Right. So he's kind of a real
1: muso, much younger than me, but he's saying you know, when he's playing supporting us, he's saying, Man, you know, I know so many people who would love to have you guys in the States, you'd do a bomb. And I reckon I want to have a go at this and he sort of say, Leave it with me, you know. So we exchanged contacts and uh, he um organized a tour of the USA, even though he wasn't a booker. But he wanted he had an interest in booking because he wanted to work at every aspect of music because that was his life yes so he, he booked us a tour of the west coast and decided we'd do the east coast a bit later so we did the east coast the next year in 2019 did well did great so um and larry hardy from in the red kind of wanted to put records out, so he recorded a single with us, or we recorded a single and licensed it to him, and then we did an EP and licensed it to him. And um, then we've done this album called Negativity. And um, so if you haven't heard it and don't know it, you should check it out because the reviews are that it's like we never left. This is the scientists. It's unmistakably the scientists.
0: So, did you record all this during lockdown, or was that
1: already? um, We recorded it at the end of that touring phase. We ended up back in Australia, and Tony was before he flew out again for for us to do a recording. So, we decided to write things on the road. So, or or not write on the road. We we just somehow there were some major challenges for writing for the scientists. One was that the beat was so nuanced and Leanne was the only person who could do the job because she wasn't really a musician. So there was another, no alien material for the body of the scientists to reject her. Yes. So she was part of the DNA, was all scientists. and um, but, but she wasn't a muser, she was a schoolteacher. So really, you know, so she'd say, you know, up and leave that job moan about it and then go out and live the rock and roll lifestyle and then suddenly think, Oh, I wish I'd never left this. This is great. But um but uh, she couldn't she couldn't really jam. She couldn't really so to write material in that vein was really difficult. But I I've taught myself drums and that's what I do. I kinda of understand that bit. So I, I'd jam up a beat and if it, something sounded good I'd be singing along to it and I'd send it off to Tony and say, send me back a riff. Yes. Send me back a riff and I'd turn. I'd write some lyrics to it and then I'd take it to Leanne and Boris and uh, we'd sort of knock it into a song. So that's, in a way, that was Leanne's chance to start writing and Boris too really, you know, it was where Boris had written before but this is really like the, the writing process of the band was that I and mean, it was really finally the first time the band really developed its own way of writing in its whole history with this bizarre late point in our history so negativity is you can hear the band that's how it works.
0: Blimey that's that's and that's a huge gap of, of writing material isn't it from from the because the, the the previous time was probably the late 80s wasn't it?
1: Yeah 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 we didn't write it was it was the mid-80s i mean it was sort of human jukebox yeah you know, if you don't count that as a surrealist album but as a scientist album it's kind of halfway um,
0: so does that mean though that you're quite a steady four-piece band
1: i think well emmett over in the states is probably gonna he, he'll manage us if 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 Pandemic finishes in a way enough in the next year or two that we could go back there, or if there's a way that we can go there, we'll go and tour. Um, yes, he, he'll do that. He'll do that. He'll fulfil that role, and because um, he loves the band, he just sort of, you know, he's like another member in a lot of ways.
2: But um, he he actually gets the band, you know,
1: he's was like that, and I think the band gets him. We think, oh, he's finally somebody gets us. So.
0: Um, So is is music your full-time sort of occupation, or do you have other things on the side as well?
1: In actual fact, art was, visual art was always my first thing. Right. So you look at the background there, it's a painting I did.
0: Yes, I can see. That's
2: yours.
1: If you look up here, I know the radio people can't see that. No, but that's... A couple of of years ago. And, um, yeah... I'll show you this. Yeah, let's
0: have a look. In the pandemic, I um,
1: I, I had nothing to do but walk around our neighbourhood and um, do these little watercolour postcards of my neighbourhood and send them to people. Nice. So they they are just little paint, little, you know, very quaint, ordinary watercolours, but I think in the form of that is a record of <laughs> the first wave of the pandemic for me. I, that I kind of that's my little art piece for
0: it. So well, I'm not surprised. You've got to have a focus. So, are you now back in Perth? Is this your?
1: No, no. I'm in Melbourne. I've been Melbourne, in Melbourne since right? Nineteen ninety, and uh, it's my home. And um, like I say, I teach music, but I try to have an, an art exhibition every year, and um, that's getting getting higher prices for that i that's I'm sort of, um, it's it's curious. Um, Mick Harvey from the Bad from one time Bad Seed member. He's yes. Friend. His wife, Katie Beadle, is, is a very lovely person who is also a visual artist. And they've got a cafe gallery. And um, i looking at, at another, I had an exhibition with them in, in their gallery last year. And I went with one of my surrealist partners, um, Stu. We had a, an exhibition and called it the Surrealists Exhibition, funnily enough, <laughs> and, and uh, it did well. We both did pretty well out of it. So I thought, I'm going to continue doing this. Um done it for a few years now. To... Painting has been my saviour over the pandemic because uh, gigs have gone out the window. Mm. But, you know, every now and then um, something happens, like, i guess if i I guess if I can look at it like my art, which is what i've really done, really what happened was when I quit art school, I think me being in bands became my what it took the place of my visual art, and gradually visual art has come back in and I've continued with it so it was just another it, way of another outlet for me in music
0: yes absolutely I've
1: always, I've always approached it as though it was my art so um i think i'll just that's how i look at it and um find ways of making it sustain
0: really. it's got to be done i mean if it was anything you could have said to your 16 or 18 year old self start no was there anything because you've had an amazingly busy year a uh, decade life haven't you with all the different projects and bands and creative endeavors so i just wondered if it's anything you'd have just wanted to whisper in their ear and say I would just keep an eye on that, or I would just focus on this. Oh, gosh.
1: Um, you know, I just read, you No, know, Thomas Keneally, the Australian writer?
2: No. From,
1: well, he sort of comes from an Irish um, Catholic background, um, which is sort of funny because, in a way, I do too. Salmon, believe it or not, comes from comes from Ireland, so it's Irish but as well as the Aboriginal thing. And on, on my mum's side, there's the Northern England. There's a, it's a mix-up. Yes. Um, there is that Catholic kind of thing. But, um, it's just funny. He's saying to his 16-year-old self, oh, look, I, I, what would I say? I'd just say, just do what you're doing. Just keep doing it. Don't stop. Don't do... Beli-. And I actually would say, perhaps I would say, look, because I didn't, I was actually good at at uh, drawing and painting, mm. I very quickly became unsure of myself at art school. Um, I didn't believe that I had anything to say with it. And I realised now that if I'd have just kept at it, working through it, things would come to me. Because what happened was I left to become a musician I just ended up as a musician, really. If you look at that Troubled Waters strip club scenario, I just ended up in music. So I took this gap year, discovered punk rock, and um, eventually i sort of come off the gap year. I'm going to go back to art school if I can because I want to do that, um, finish off that fine arts degree just for the sake of bookending that but, you know, not finishing things off. But um. Actually, book endings a bad analogy. So I'd say to my sixteen year old self, you know, you just just keep doing it. Just whatever your art is, just keep doing that, and uh, also believe in yourself. With um, you know, because I've been married twice and made bad choices, <laughs> made very bad choices there <laughs> with with girlfriends and wives and things. But I've got a, an amazing um, partner now and. I think she's she's beautiful and wonderful and um we, we have a great time she's still up sleeping upstairs there now <laughs> Where are yeah. you, Where you wondering
0: you? what are you talking to yes yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. so
1: so but, but I would say just keep just doing what you're doing you know just you can do your art will work it'll win yeah and and just do that you yeah. know so that's how I feel because I feel like I don't feel any more, oh, I can't get a gig because there's a pandemic. You know, everybody asks me, oh, you must be so frustrated. And I think, well, things have happened. I can do this. I've figured out ways. Yes. And, uh, so I, um, I've um, sort of worked out a, it, it's happened. It's all, you know, I don't, um, I'm happy with things, but I, you know, life offers its frustrations and you get over the challenge. It's just you can always salvage something from a situation. It's. it's all
0: is not lost. No, absolutely. That, that's and the
1: d- thing I tell my sixteen-year-old self.
0: Yes, all's not lost. And just and just kind of with all the work that you've done, is there any particular album that you are really fond of, and you think, oh, that was that's kind of something really special? Uh,
1: no, I love them all. <laughs> I think they're all brilliant. Excellent. <laughs> Uh, you know, I I believed in them all. You know, I knew it all. I, I I really believed in 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 them all, and they were all kind of breakthrough moments for me. So I can't look back at them and think, oh, you know, no you you know you could have. They all look like, maybe they're like children
0: they're yes like block, you love them like equally yeah no that's nice actually i'm just impressed i mean you've got such an amazing back catalogue and discography it's it's quite extraordinary really you haven't stu- you know a bit like david bowie until he had his heart attack he you know literally brought out nearly an album a year during the 70s and then obviously was very prolific for the other decades well
1: and what i do nowadays because i look at it and i think God, i don't really need to write another song you know? And I didn't write. I mean, there's that album that was like it's more of the concept of the album being made up on the spot. So that's the point of that. But um, and I got ambushed by a song um, through through the pandemic. Um, So I I wrote this song called Self Replicator. It kind of ambushed me from behind this bush on one of my walks. Like suddenly I'm thinking Self Replicator. There's a song. Yeah, pandemic. And I got this
2: other song. Floating around in my head, um, which is a BJ Thomas Baccarat thing called "Everybody's Out of Town," and that's singing in my head with tubers and banjo. Um, nice.
1: So I did this recording, and because this is a funny thing, a pressing plant in, in the next suburb opens up, and they're kind of really swell guys. That like sort of um, and and of course, pandemic happens, and the government's giving. People stimulus packages, you know, money that they have to give because you know to stimulate the economy. And I'm thinking, what will I do? Well, this pressing plant needs my help. Yes. So screw, screw the bars. They're they're crying poor because you know and everybody the musicians are meant it. But you know, they always <laughs> they are always tied ass with me. So screw them. So I thought I'll go I'll go and um, you know I'll pack in my money to this pressing plant. So I've done. Three albums? No, no, I've done, no, not Albums. I've done a surrealist album. I did a thing, which is a, an experimental thing called OK Commissioner. These things, you know, I, I make them myself and sell them. Mm. So, you know, I get I press them up the road and oh, so I got this uh, single that I did that's maybe came out a few months back called Self Replicator. Everybody's out of town, so that's what I did. But it was just I didn't really want to write another song. It just happened so. I think I don't need another. You know, I've got about four hundred songs in my catalog. So I know these people would say they write thousands, but you know, I've, I've been writing a song, you know, every month of every year since God knows when. And, yes, you know, seventy albums or something since I last counted of some form or other. It's stupid. I don't need it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's the last thing I need. But I, um, I've got a. a do this show when i when pandemic allows it called haunted grooves because a lot of the people that i've worked with and collaborated with have passed away and it seemed a an idea that i had and um seems to strangely have legs because what i do is i have a slideshow going on and i read out of a book a bit of a story i tell a few stories about the people that i've collaborated with and i play with a drummer and uh use a loop pedal with my guitar to play the part of the person who's departed, sort of. And I kind of do this thing, this show called Horned Grooves, and I thought, this kind of works, you know. It's sort of a way of breathing life into old songs that people might have forgotten about
2: and and people, you know, the the way of bringing them back a little bit. Yes. They're telling their
1: story. So I've got that and I've got another one I'm doing about the blues in Perth, but it's kind of, um, I'm working on that for when I come out. So I've got a few sort of, I've, somehow that told me there's a different way of presenting material that's kind of a kind of multimedia thing and I can make that happen. So I'm just kind of interested in developing a few ideas like that. So
0: Fantastic. It's a,
1: it's a way of having a show where where people, people that, that one sort of did well, even though it's been cancelled and booked and cancelled and booked many times. <laughs> I've done it in Melbourne. Um, twice, I've taken it to regional Victoria. I've taken it to Adelaide, and I've taken it to Sydney, and it's done well everywhere. And I don't know. Maybe I'll... I've got recordings. Put it together. I could piece something together with that. I think I'm kind of interested in that. It interests me to do that, and it interests me that maybe I could do this um, other rootsy kind of show that I'm thinking of. This that kind of explains my relationship to the blues yeah. and you know what, where we started with this. Where, sort of fits in. It's kind of funny. It's telling a, a, a glib tale out of a book is a kind of good. It works for me because people look at this dusty old tome and think they'll accept you reading it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, so I do that. So that I don't have to learn. I don't have to memorise my lines. It's
0: the best way. Them. Absolutely. That sounds good. Yeah. But well, look, this has been, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. I'll let you, um, you know, take a cup of coffee to your... I'll take
1: my cup of coffee. Exactly, to Maxine. She'll
0: say, hey, yes, where have you been? Who have you been talking to? But look, this has been fantastic. And if you want, I can always send you the link of the, the interview and then you can always use it wherever on so your any of your social media platform sites and um, if you want. And um, that'd be great. Is island, right? You know, but... in, in the last week, a guy from Perth,
1: has done an, a podcast with me about the old days, and a guy from Germany <laughs> has done right. something me about, about the EP that the scientist did in 1980, because he's writing a book on things that happened in 1980.
0: Is he? No. It's
1: bizarre. it's bizarre. It's just This one week, this has all happened. I've been on Zoom all week.
0: Yeah, because I think I got in touch with you in the, in the autumn, didn't I? Or our autumn. Yeah, it's, I think- been,
1: it's kind of been difficult. You wouldn't believe. I don't know. It's just the time. The planets haven't aligned, but they've aligned right at this uh, start at the end of the new year, twenty
2: twenty
0: two. Yeah, I do, I do. I sort of remember. I was sort of, yeah. Just, I think you were just like, oh, you, you oh, you were doing a crash. You said you've you got a, a, a graduate certificate course you were doing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm. Yeah. I'm hopefully I've passed
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yes. And is that all done now?
1: It's all done. I've got all my assignments in. Most of the I've got most of the marks back and I've you know, I'm getting through. I'm getting by. Um me and one of the lecturers, we we're kind of on different wavelengths. He's he's um one of the music teachers, but he's into musical theatre, so
0: Right. That's interesting.
1: So, you know, cats and um all that sort of stuff and probably Hamilton. He's his vibe, but he's taking this course um uh, studies in innovation and um what's the other one uh, uh, creative barriers to creativity and um or something like that. See, I don't even know the name of my course. i <laughs> <And laughs> deserve to pass, but uh, he's got a very corporate view on creativity, I think there's all these sort of things like um. Minimum viable content and uh, start you know lean startups and oh God if, I, if I could if I could in that space of time absorb enough of these things and apply it to the way I do things because I don't really believe anybody that's been successful in business has ever gone by these rules. I think what's happened is all the CEOs and uh, people have managed to sponge off of creativity over the years have made these formulas up and they're buzzwords they're t- yes good to things and it's not how creativity works because you know i actually yeah there's it's a whole other story but i think we're on different wavelengths and hopefully he'll give me a, a pass for my stuff but, um, <laughs> it'd
0: be slightly ironic if he didn't so um
1: well, yeah, exactly. It would possibly be missed on him too. but And again, who knows. He's, a lovely, he's been a lovely, helpful guy. No, no, he's, not, he's a very sweet guy. He's given me an opportunity. But it's just one of those things, different wavelengths.
2: Yes.
0: So. It's a tricky one. But, look, thank you ever so much again. And, um, yes, all the best. And have a lovely day. And I'm going to go to bed soon. Anyway, look, take care. <laughs> Yeah, and it's great that I saw you in Norwich. I guess you, got, you know that that great tour at the, you know that you were coming round, and Susie had sort of spun her kneecap, hadn't she, or ligaments?
1: Yes, I I, I remember doing Norwich. I do remember doing it. It, it's, it is funny that it's um, but um, I also know we played. Um, what's the other one <laughs> the, the other witch but the, the greenwich we we played greenwich too at one not on the banshees but within that time frame
0: so right it's a funny thing
1: it was um it, it wasn't like playing in london there was something different about it. it wasn't you know there was a different vibe there which i enjoyed so yeah we're both places so i don't know if they're even remotely alike but i can i used to love going to the regional um places of the uk it's just, everything every place has had
0: such a different vibe, you know? Yeah, different totally. And I just remember I was at that age where, you know, when you, you know, when someone announced they were touring you bought a ticket straight away, you had months of just so exciting, you know, that excitement building, playing the record constantly and constantly and then seeing them, you know, it was like the lights go down, the band comes on stage, you know, it's like and then it's like I suddenly thought, oh yes, yeah, the scientists, I did see you play. Yes, there you go That's with great. your new drummer, which I'm impressed. There you go.
1: Yeah, it was Leanne. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and she's
0: still with you, like from 1980 something.
1: 1986,
0: that would have been. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, look, take care. Thanks again, and uh, have Thank a lovely you. day. See you later. See you. Bye bye. Bye. And that was me in conversation with Kim Salmon from the Scientists and um, all his other solo projects that he's done. Over the decades, thank you ever so much for listening. A massive thank you to Kim for that. Um, This has been the C86 Show, David So, If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these, um, keep it positive, please. All these uh, interviews, let's face it, long chats, really, have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Check them out. They will... Well, I was going to say change your life I'll send you to sleep. It's a fine line. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.